Welcome to New Deal Radio, Season 2, Episode 7. Today is May 21st, 2020. I'm your host, Robert Lucero, the director of the New Deal Political Action Committee. We're very excited about today's show. We have with us um, Alfeka Mutardi. She is a recently retired macroeconomist who worked for the International Monetary Fund for over 25 years. She specialized in the oil sector and also on Af- in the African Department on Debt Relief uh, for Poor Nations. She's now serving as the macroeconomic advisor to the Coalition for National Infrastructure Bank. In our previous episodes this year, we have had a couple of leading members uh, of the Coalition for National Infrastructure Bank. Uh, We had Angela Vullo, who's the vice president of the group, and we had um, Stan Forsek, who is the retired Amtrak executive uh, with a lot of experience in heavy industry. Uh, We had him on, uh, on, I think it was episode uh, three, if I'm correct. Um, I really strongly advise listening to all three of these shows, uh, including today's, um, to get a sense of the only real bill on Capitol Hill right now, House Resolution 6422, that addresses the long-term issues um, involved with the COVID-19 depression, as we discussed it in the interview. Uh, That is, this is not going to be some V-shaped recovery. This is not some... Uh, something we can blame only on COVID-19, we have a fundamental economic crisis. And it's been in the works, not just for months or some detailed timeline going back to last year about when Trump could have responded to the coronavirus or when somebody else could have done something or when Obama could have done something, according to the Trump administration. Um, The issue is we've been suffering through decades of incompetence, really, when it comes to making uh, public policy Uh, especially in the areas of infrastructure. Again, hard and soft infrastructure. Hard infrastructure is what you drive on in your cars with the roads, bridges, etc. And soft infrastructure includes education and healthcare. Both those uh, last two, healthcare and education, include some hard infrastructure like the actual buildings of hospitals and schools. But these are areas we tend to think about and debate from uh, these these fixed positions that we've had for so long on uh, health care. Uh, this is, of course, one of the flaws in, in either side of the discussion on Obamacare, whether you're for it or against it or whatever, people took positions on that. The question is, what kind of physical capacity do you have to deliver health care? What is your situation with your actual buildings and clinics and uh, equipment? We learned that the hard way this time. But in, as you'll see in the discussion with Alfeca, the, the issue is much broader. The report card we've been getting from the American Society of Civil Engineers for years now has been showing that as a nation, we are receiving failing grades when it comes to the conditions of our infrastructure. Um, So I don't want to say much more. Alfeca's interview is very in-depth, and I want to share with you the website. It's www.nibcoalition.com. This is their 
uh, coalition website for the National Infrastructure Bank. Let's make sure it's yeah, it's not it's .com and not .org. And they uh, have been in existence for over two years now. Uh, the people who've been involved in the coalition have been working in po- public policy uh, from labor unions, from civil rights groups, from state representative groups. And you'll be very impressed with some of the folks that are on there and some of the resolutions they've had passed by official organizations across the country calling for a $4 trillion national infrastructure bank. $4 trillion last year sounded like a lot of money. Today, it sounds like uh, a lot less now that Congress is just throwing around trillions. This bill, however, calls for no new appropriations. Uh, It's a very uh, surprising element to this national infrastructure bill. So uh, without any more delay, uh, let's turn it over to the interview with Alfeka Mutardi. Welcome back to New Deal Radio. We have on the line with us Alfeka Mutardi, who is the Senior Macroeconomist uh, Advisor on the National uh, Infrastructure Bank uh, Coalition. Uh, you there, Alfeka? I am. Thank you very much, Robert. Well, we're excited to have you on here because uh, this National Infrastructure Bank, the discussion of, of, of what we need to be doing coming out of this COVID-19 situation, uh, is all over everybody's mind in terms of the economy. So, I wanted to ask you, you are part of this coalition. You've been involved in studying economics for uh, over 25 years, from what I understand. Um, And you've been pushing for this National Infrastructure Bank, which now has a bill in Congress, House Resolution 6422. Uh, It's a $4 trillion infrastructure bank. I'll let you talk about some of the details. But give us a little bit of a sense of both the original discussion of the National Infrastructure Bank from your group and how that intersected this amazing crisis that we're in now. Super. Okay, so our proposal uh, for a a national infrastructure bank is based uh, on four infrastructure banks that we've had in our nation's history, starting with the first bank of the United States by Alexander Hamilton, then there was a second bank under John Quincy Adams, the third system of banks under Abraham Lincoln, and the fourth was a something called the Reconstruction Finance Corporation under FDR. And all of them operated in sort of the same uh, manner that we have in in mind for this new bank, uh, which would be enacted by this bill that you've just mentioned, H.R. 6422, uh, and would uh, be be a set-aside institution, a government-sponsored institution, to lend just for infrastructure needs. Uh, The reason that we need a separate bank, uh, separate from budgets uh, that have paid for infrastructure in the past, is that those budgets uh, over the last 60 years have fallen into disarray and the amount of spending that's gone towards infrastructure has fallen quite substantially over time. Now we only spend about 2.5% of our GDP on infrastructure. That's about half the level in uh, Europe, and the, the Chinese, for example, spend 8 or 9% of their GDP on infrastructure. So that shows yeah. how we're falling behind and losing our competitive edge. So uh, we, uh, envisage a, we envisage through this bill a bank that could lend up to $4 trillion to cover the infrastructure areas that have been identified as in chronic need by the American Society of Civil Engineers. Um, that's everything from uh, roads, bridges, schools, the electricity grid, 
water and wastewater, some work at airports and rail, uh, hazardous waste. And then in addition to that, there's some more needs on top of that. We, we, we have uh, drastic need for more affordable housing in this country. Uh, we need high-speed rail, a whole grid, to um, better connect and transport us um, and feed into the other transportation networks, um, be they airplanes or, or um, mass transit or even roads. And then we need to complete broadband access to get uh, remote areas of our economy uh, on, the, on the broadband grid. Uh, and um, we, we might need some other projects as well. So mm -hmm. this, this $4 trillion bank is scaled to, to cover all of those infrastructure projects. And the beauty about the bank uh, is that it would operate like a commercial bank um, with, respect to the, with respect to the federal budget. It would be budget neutral. Uh, it wouldn't require any new taxes like a gas tax or anything like that, and it wouldn't create any new debt. That's, those things have been the hang-ups for, for getting uh, infrastructure appropriated through, through the federal budget. Mm-hmm. And then it really, really supports uh, Davis-Bacon. Uh, it really supports workers in America. Uh, the, the big problem, as I see from an, uh, a macroeconomic point of view, is that we have huge income inequality in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, it was really high at the, the turn of the century in, in 1900. It fell down to uh, around 1970 or so, but it's, now it's way back up to those 1900 levels. And mm -hmm. that, that, that income inequality means that, 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 our, that our economy is in a structural uh, deficit and that's really dragging down uh, economic growth and um, productivity and a whole lot of other things. So well, that's what I think workers. is um, – yeah, I'm sorry. That's what I think is so critical right now about the situation we find ourselves in is that we've, we've had discussions for years recently about income inequality, different – in-depth analyses and even some of the recent books, it's gotten to the point where you had this recent book about deaths of despair, talking about what's happening yeah. now to people in their 40s and 50s, particularly white working men or white uh, unemployed men who seem to be essentially losing all hope and killing themselves given what's happened. Um, so we've had a problem for a long time that, that predated uh, the COVID-19 crisis and really uh, went beyond any party. Uh, so how do you see that sort of background and backdrop for what you're dealing with now in conversations about getting support for the National Infrastructure Bank? Right. So um, there are several layers going on here. We have not addressed the income inequality problem. We just made it worse, for example, with the, the latest tax cut uh, act in 2017. Right. Um, the way that this bank deals with it is uh, it requires that projects that receive loans from the bank for infrastructure projects uh, pay Davis-Bacon wages. That's a, an acronym that means union-level type wages. Right. Uh, that it has Buy America provisions, so it won't be buying, for example, dump steel from China, but it'll be supporting steel factories in America. Uh, and it'll uh, support project labor agreements. So all of those things, and then uh, and then it, it, we expect that it will create uh, $4 trillion in spending will create 25 million new great-paying jobs. Uh, mm -hmm. And what that does is it really upends the whole job market because now it's creating much more demand for workers 
that do exactly these kind of jobs um, that, that you've just mentioned, um, construction workers um, that, her, that, have, that have, have had been socioeconomically impacted over many years now. And mm -hmm. then in addition, uh, it, it has the capacity to support the workers who are going to lose their jobs as a result of the great, this great, what I call the Great Depression of 2020. I yeah. really think that this is not going to be a V-shaped recovery uh, like many uh, expect, and I'm, um, people who have said that uh, in agreement are, with that are um, and, and folks anywhere from economists to Jerome Powell himself, the head of the Federal Reserve. Um, you, you can just imagine that even though there have been stimulus packages provided by the government to address the short-term uh, uh, contraction of our economy, the scale of this contraction is so large that it mm -hmm. has now put 36 million people out of work, uh, even despite the fact that there have been packages to provide um, small loans for, for small businesses. Many of those small businesses were not able to, uh, to get those loans. Uh, many other folks are not able to even get unemployment insurance. Uh, the un unemployment insurance is going to end in just a few weeks. We don't know how long this, this, this coronavirus effect on the economy is going to last because we don't know how long the, the virus itself is going to last. And mm -hmm. um, because it's not being very well handled, uh, we could have another surge or a spike or even a worse uh, pandemic in the fall. Um, the 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 armed forces is now, the Pentagon is now forecasting that the effects of this will last well into 2021. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office has done uh, forecasts of their own, which show that uh, their first estimate was we would have a decline in the economy of 6% this year, and then a recovery of only half that amount next year. But by the time they really get seriously down to honing in their forecasts and see what the effects are this summer they're going to do another uh, forecast it could be it could be much worse my i think that many of these uh, small businesses will not be able to reopen and many mm -hmm. of the jobs will be lost permanently and people will lose their health insurance on top of that well so, I think one, yeah i think one question this brings up is uh this question of what is investment because if you compare how we have done since this broke out in the in the second in the first quarter of this year um to OECD countries to China itself which is you know different in terms of uh their overall economy but still there's there's comparisons to be made and then of course South Korea but if you just look at the OECD countries in South Korea or even or Japan these are countries that learn learn from us we like to say we used to like to say about what happened to them in the post-war world in the 40s 50s and 60s uh, the Marshall Plan in Europe, um, you know, what, what were the actual <clears throat> investment uh, commitments and what we think of as safety nets that were set up that have created a situation where, yes, they are facing recession uh, and worse as well. But so far, you don't see the kinds of dramatic swings uh, that you have here. What, what do you think is the, the difference and what would this National Infrastructure Bank do to address that difference between us and many of these OECD countries? Right. So their social safety net is in a big, much stronger position than, than ours is. They, they typically are much more willing to pay taxes to, to keep um, 
um, social equanimity, and in addition, their income inequality on a re- as a result of that is much lower than ours. So what right. this what this pandemic is doing is exposing all of these raw areas in the structure of our economy where people don't have health insurance, where people, uh, 40% of the population before the virus did not have enough money to meet uh, a, a large uh, income expense, where housing uh, problems were so severe and uh, the housing cost was so high <clears throat> and uh, people's employment was tenuous that they were only one paycheck away from becoming homeless or, um, or losing their place place where they live. So uh, this, is, this coronavirus has certainly exposed all the weaknesses in our economy that don't exist in those other places. In addition to that, they uh, were very much up front uh, in, a, in a stronger position to make sure that uh, they kept people employed in, in businesses um, uh, and that if, for those people that were out of work, uh, countries like Holland, for example, routinely uses infrastructure spending as a way to uh, to uh, to offset a V-shaped recession whenever they have one. As soon as there's a recession like that, they immediately start up their infrastructure projects, and they have funding on, on, on hand to, to do that. Mm-hmm. So um, I, whereas we have given uh, – we have – our setup has been uh, through um, unemployment insurance and uh, food um, pack food um, appropriations, like for the SNAP program, which are now under assault uh, and being cut back. Um, And they don't go uh, anywhere near far enough to retraining people and getting them into better paying, good, good, better paying permanent jobs. Um, Mm -hmm. Our manufacturing has cut way back. And our construction industry, when you look at the share of gross domestic product that goes to various sectors, uh, it's just mm-hmm. overwhelmingly going to the financial sector and the IT sector, information technology sector, and all the manufacturing and construction and are, are just uh, collapsing backwards and um, sort of effectively disappearing. So this would mm-hmm. enhance jobs in the very sectors uh, where those jobs are needed. Well, you mentioned the early, uh, the turn of the century, 1900, uh, and I think that's important for people to think about, not just in terms of where we were in 1900, because 1900 is a bit of a snapshot between then and, let's say, uh, the impact of uh, Teddy Roosevelt's uh, trust busting. But if you go back even uh, to the, the post-Civil War era, you essentially had a lot of looting of the economy uh, by these people that we think of as these big industrial uh, uh, tycoons. They they depended on uh, 30 to 40 years of using uh, collapsing infrastructure or, you know, like we have done since really the new the New Deal and um, the 50s and 60s, where we've had water, power, other major infrastructure projects, our roads that were really built between the 30s and the 50s, and we've had a problem of of investment. For example, recently we've seen in the news that uh, retailers like uh, or stores that people think of as as just pillars. Uh, of of our economy, uh, like J.C. Penney, uh, all of a sudden they're going out of business, and you think, well, you know, they they couldn't survive the hit. Uh, you have online retail, but what you also find is behind this is these private equity funds. They've been buying out these businesses as seeing an income stream. Same thing happened to J. Crew. Uh, same thing happened to Toys R Us actually, and it's it's the last gasp of this uh, buyout uh, culture that we have from the 80s. 
So it seems to me we're looking at a paradigm shift. We're looking at the need for a return to what we've had before. You mentioned our, our first national bank, our second national bank during the time of John Quincy Adams, uh, the ways that um, Lincoln had to manipulate essentially a, a third national bank, uh, national currency, um, and the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. Those were all paradigm shifts. Do you see something like that as necessary now? I think that the coronavirus depression will bring it on. I always ask the question, what, what brings on progressive movements, and especially what brought on the one from 1890 onwards uh, uh, through, uh, through the World War II and the Great Depression. Uh, and when you have severe unemployment like this, I think that will really be the stimulus that will support the progressive movement, more progressive thinking, uh, in terms of having institutions like this that to take a greater care for the for the public good, um, build infrastructure at the same time, strengthen the economy, and help workers all at the same time. Uh, that that will be the, the sort of psychological push to get this. It, it, the really the Congress, the federal government, at at the end of the day, maybe by the end of this year, won't have any other choice. They just won't. It, it's the right. situation will be so bad that they just won't have any other choice. Oh, yeah, and that's that's another thing in terms of the comparison to the 1930s is that if you look at the first 100 days, I don't think we even talked about the first 100 days until after FDR, but the first two weeks, right, with the rapid-fire legislation that came through that was necessary uh, if if the country was going to survive. So, in a sense, this, this infrastructure bill, 6422, uh, could be the first of of essentially a new – species of legislation that starts to uh, undo the mess that we've had for, in my view, the last uh, 50, 52 years. I, I tend to go back to 68, where you had the assassination, the final assassinations of the 60s, and then the disaster of the Democratic Convention, and the loss of any kind of sense, really, uh, in the 70s and 80s, of, of either party really uh, focusing on these issues of infrastructure and long-term commitments. Right, and also... Uh, blue collar workers too. I think that mm -hmm. really, uh, this is really uh, the technology moved on. It left blue collar workers behind, and um, they are really the the segment and the foundation of our economy that really needs to be bolstered and can be bolstered with this with this national infrastructure bank. Mm -hmm. No, it's true, and I think people miss this when they talk about politics because I remember, you know, we started the New Deal Political Action Committee in the summer of 2016. And one of the motivating facts was that um, Hillary Clinton had given a speech in Warren, Michigan, during her campaign, which sounded really good. It was like, okay, she's talking about infrastructure and blue collar. But then I think she never went back. I think <laughs> that the campaign did something else. And, and so uh, Democrats will complain about Trump, but it's sort of like, well, you've been abandoning your actual base for decades. And yeah, uh, they're tired of it. There will be a second part to all of this, too. I think one of the things uh, with regard to Hillary Clinton that was suspected was that was she was very much a Wall Street insider. I mean, mm -hmm. those, today the, the, the monoliths, the, the big corporations that have taken over from the, the Rockefellers and the other uh, large corporations that were uh, scooping off the, the cream from our economy uh, back in the days of manufacturing, those big things, those big monoliths now are are Wall Street banks. And so, in mm -hmm. addition to, we'll need the second pillar of FDR's three. I like to call it his three-legged stool 
Uh, one was the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. The second one was uh, something called the Glass-Steagall Act, which mm-hmm. uh, which cu- cut down the large Wall Street banks that had led to the Great Depression, that had created the Great Depression, and uh, um, could w- this could happen again, that we could have another financial crisis on top of the economic crisis that has been caused by the shutdown. And mm-hmm. then the third leg was the was the antitrust. So we'll need all three legs of FDR's stool to to really have a comprehensive New Deal approach. Um, this this will just be the first one, the one the one in the door. Um, I think if if the Wall Street banks fail and they look like they're really wobbling very very badly, um, mm-hmm. then then the, the Glass-Steagall um, and breaking up the Wall Street banks will be another aspect uh, that we'll have to go through. Mm-hmm. You. Talk a little bit about in some of your writings the situation in California, and I, I'm in California, but it's not even so much that I'm I'm here. It's that California, as we know, is the largest state in the United States uh, in terms of population, but also in terms of economics. Uh, and we've been uh, since the New Deal, really, uh, we've been one of the largest growing economies in in the world. And I think the last the last stats were that we're still the fifth largest economy in the world if we were on our own. What's your sense of, of this National Infrastructure Bank uh, here? We also, of course, uh, have the Speaker of the House as a representative from, from California. So, uh, as you say, California is a bit of a special case because it is so large and it's the fifth largest economy in the world. Uh, but it does have nat- infrastructure needs uh, and, and a very large and growing population that are stressing uh, today's infrastructure uh, that have been identified and priced in to uh, this this four trillion dollar package of um, that the of, of financing that the National Infrastructure Bank will provide. So, for example, you can look at the um, the American Society of Civil Engineers 2019 assessment of infrastructure for for California, and they give uh, your state a, a, a report card grade of C minus. Uh, and they point out um, very large infrastructure needs for drinking water. That's going to cost you $51 billion over the next 20 years. Uh, wastewater, uh, that'll be another $26 billion over the next 20 years. Uh, roads, they give you uh, D minus, for example, with 44% of your roads in poor condition. Um, mm-hmm. Bridges are C minus, uh, those kind of things. You have, uh, you have ports all along the coast there that rank California as the third uh, largest nationally for a port system. Uh, and you desperately, desperately, because you're a large state in terms of geography and up and down, spread out geography, uh, you all ha- also have huge um, needs for a high-speed rail in your state. Mm-hmm. And then finally, uh, you have a significant problem uh, with your economy being uh, very high cost. And um, that means that includes uh, the lack of affordable housing in the state that has exacerbated your homelessness problem. So the estimates are California needs 1.4 million more affordable rental units that need to be built. Uh, as I said, you need the high-speed rail system, and you need to have some kind of rationalization in your whole transportation system that links up where people live with where they, uh, with where they work and uh, provide provide um, public transit that that is cost affordable for them, uh, so that they can get from here to there uh, and um, improve their economic conditions. So even though you have a high, a very strong 
IT um, um, sector in your in your economy. Uh, you, you also have uh, an income inequality problem there in California too, and um, you'll need a lot of construction work and uh, financing for infrastructure to to make your economic development over the next 20 years successful. Yeah, and the other, the other thing to, to add to this, I think, is that uh, you mentioned the Wall Street banks uh, wobbling. The cities are wobbling, too. you got these municipalities uh, that are looking at, again, we had great times. We was almost like our own version of the Roaring Twenties the last couple of years because the, the money looked good. You know, certain budgets looked good. Yep. Um, but it was known that if certain zip codes got hit with a, with a big uh, blow, then that would be a huge chunk to the state revenue. Then you have cities who, like states, can't create their own debt to uh, uh, solve their problems. They can't. They have to balance their budgets. We had a case here in, in Santa Monica, a very high-profile city, where a very known, uh, a very well-known city manager uh, resigned from his office just a couple of weeks ago in a very public way saying that the city council was in la-la land, that the city council didn't understand that this was huge, that we essentially the city had hit an iceberg. So what, what's the impact of this commitment to a national infrastructure bank where you actually have no new debt, as you've mentioned, uh, or no new appropriations? Um, what, what would be the positive impact in the spinoffs to the budgets of, of local governments, counties, and cities? So we envisage that the the $4 trillion in loans for infrastructure would go to any entity that owns the public infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So that's spread across different balance sheets. State own, states' uh, balance sheets own some infrastructure, including um, 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 four-year colleges and, um, and the, the state road system. Counties own some of it. Their, their school, counties and cities, their schools, their, um, their local roads, uh, that kind of thing. Um, uh, some corporations that were created by the states and the counties, like utilities, uh, they might own the waterworks, that kind of thing. So each one of these would, would be coming in for a loan from the infrastructure bank for their particular uh, infrastructure projects. Um, the reason we've configured it that way is so that they would have the most say over the kinds of infrastructure needs that they have, and they could even bundle projects so that you're, um, you can bundle projects for a city that in, uh, involve waterworks and roadworks and, and that kind of thing too. Um, the, going into the coronavirus, we had done a very careful assessment to see to ask the question: Well, can these states and municipalities re, repay these loans? Um, just they, they, they've already they're already taking loans, for example, in the form of municipal bonds. So right. we looked at the bonds to see how what what kind of shape were they were they were in. Um, there's something like three trillion, uh, three or four trillion dollars already out there in loans that they have taken uh, through these through these through these bonds, municipal bonds. And um, then we looked at the the ratings for these bonds, which were in pretty good shape because uh, all the states and municipalities got hit from the last recession around the 2008 recession, and it took them a long time to dig themselves out. Um, mm -hmm. Most states were able to dig themselves out quite well. Um, they, uh, they, they are bond, the bond ratings for, say, uh, 42 out of the 50 states ha, uh, were, had improved to AA or AAA, which is investment grade, um, which means that they're in good shape. Um, to give you a, a counterpoint to that, uh, 
California's bond rating, most recent bond rating, is double A minus, which is just below bond rating. And that points to the fact that the state finances, while you have a lot of income taxes and so forth coming in from your really bustling and growing economy, uh, still you have large spending needs uh, to, uh, to take care of your, your homelessness problem and your other social um, expenditures that you have coming off of your budget. So that's a special case. But altogether, we thought that the states and the municipalities were in really good shape. There were only about eight states, for example, that were running chronic budget deficits. Um, and to those states, I said, even though your rating is, is less than optimal, you have a structural problem in your economy. A state, For example, a state like Pennsylvania, which has lost a lot of manufacturing and mm -hmm. um, and has large uh, infrastructure problems. It has, even though it has a turnpike system, it still has large traffic jams and that kind of thing, and needs new mm -hmm. schools and all of its uh, the lead. It's got lead in its water pipes and those kinds of things. And I said, if you don't, uh, if you don't take, bite the bullet and take these loans for these projects and get your people working in these better-paying jobs, then you'll never be able to sort of dig yourself out of this hole. Now that we've had the, the coronavirus breakout, the, the, the early estimates are that state and local finances are going to be devastated by this. And mm -hmm. so we have, again have to ask the question, can they repay the loans? Um, the bank has provisions in it for, doing, um, for having a subsidy loan program set aside uh, whereby they might be um, forgiven for interest and principal for a certain period of time uh, until they are able to to dig themselves out. But the faster that we get people back to work, uh, the faster that we take them off of the unemployment rolls that's costing states and cities, uh, the faster we get um, uh, uh, restaurants open back up uh, that, are, that are providing t income taxes to cities and other, other uh, enhancements to their economic growth, um, and the, the better off everybody will be. Uh, we expect that that eventually the Congress will have to come up with with sort of um, financial packages. Mm -hmm. The one that's been passed uh, last Friday by the by the House, the Heroes Act, uh, has about three three trillion dollars in it to provide, um, of which about one trillion goes to state and local governments for exactly these kinds of uh, to meet these offset these um, devastating impact on their finances. So mm -hmm. the, the reality, and then we can do some other creative things too. Uh, like the Reconstruction Finance Corporation back in its day, uh, when it was trying to make a loan for uh, an area that, that was thought couldn't, couldn't afford to repay it, the classic example was the Rural Electrification Program. What mm -hmm. they did was they, made a, they, enacted, they enacted an entity, a new corporation, which would be responsible for uh, receiving this loans on its books uh, and um, doing the... Uh, the owning the new uh, electrification uh, infrastructure that was being put into these rural areas, uh, and then with time, with the growth of the whole economy and the recovery of the whole economy, um, th th those folks in rural areas could buy new appliances, they could then go and buy the electricity. Uh, the analogy today, of course, is, is rural broadband and um, um, uh, you know, and high-speed rail to put people to, to work. Um, high-speed rail, by the way, mm -hmm. uses a lot of 
a lot of workers. It, it needs a lot right. of workers, like construction workers. So this is going to hire everybody, put them, you know, put money into their pockets. They'll be paying income taxes, and then this will be the the faster way to bring mm-hmm. these st- state and local governments out of the uh, out of the the negative hole that they're in on account of this new Great Depression caused by the coronavirus. Well, yeah, that's the thing is I wanted to ask you, this could probably be our last question, but I wanted to ask you about this question of the dynamics of, of labor in the sense that before the coronavirus and for really for years, I would see, you know, I spent a lot of time living in the Bay Area in California, and the Bay Area has a couple of very large New Deal projects that you see virtually every day, the Golden Gate Bridge and the uh, Oakland-San Francisco Bay Bridge. Um, those two original bridges were built in relatively short periods of time. Each one took about two years um, max, I think. And today, you can't build an off-ramp in two years. Uh, you you go uh, just about 20 miles south of um, of the Bay Bridge to the South Bay, and there was this one connector ramp from one of the South Bay freeways to the uh, the East Bay freeway, and it took them about five years to build this one connector ramp. And part of it was you would see three guys out there working or 10 guys, you know, and two big machines. <laughs> so you didn't put enough people to work on these projects. And you could say, well, there's all this red tape and various things and labor and blah, blah, blah. Um, we've been doing something wrong for a long time. <laughs> we've not been putting people, enough people to work. We have a lot of underemployment. We have this, this gig economy now. Uh, or oh, we had it. Again, this is all pre-coronavirus. I think it's time we relook at what the what the real productive dynamics are when you put people to work in uh, the kind of work we need. I agree totally with you, and I also agree uh, with the Republican segment uh, that worked on the Trump um, the Trump uh, infrastructure um, proposal of 2017, uh, who said there's something really wrong with we, we've made huge technological advances on the IT side um, that have really bolstered our economy. But on the construction side, uh, we have a a long way to go. We're not anywhere near as nimble uh, at doing construction as, say, the Europeans are. They build Mm -hmm. all these high-speed rails and all these other kind of things, too, and don't run into these construction delays and regulatory delays uh, that, that we do. So that will have to be a large feature of the bank to see if we can streamline a lot of those um, hang-ups that are causing uh, long periods of delays. But even with that, uh, if you're running a train through neighborhoods in California uh, that, that didn't have one before um, and you need to, you know, to get approvals for all this kind of thing, uh, if you have an, uh, environmental uh, regulations that, um, that justifiably uh, ask for lower emissions uh, from, from construction and from the final product, uh, but uh, may also tag on um, extra a- approval delays, then we're, we're going to have to work on streamlining a lot of those. So it's not, it won't be a simple matter. It's not going to be easy. But like uh, John F. Kennedy said about the, the you know, the, 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 the project of going to the moon, it's not, we're not going to do it because it was easy. We're, we're going to do it because uh, we really need to do it, and, uh, and it, it's hard, and, but we'll, we'll make our way and we'll get it done. That's that's I think I think our, the approach we need to take. Right. No, I agree with you. I agree. I think we are in for 
uh, an exciting time, and we have to keep our wits about us as far as uh, making sure we're pushing things in the right direction because in these kinds of times, as we know from the, the parallel of the 1930s, things can certainly go in the wrong direction, as we saw in other parts of the world. Um, well, I so want to you, thank for you. Your listeners, for your listeners who are sure. out there uh, mm-hmm. who may be unemployed, uh, who mm-hmm. may be thinking that they'll need to have a new career uh, down the line, who've seen a devastation in their local area, um, feel free to look on our website, uh, National Infrastructure Bank, co- uh, sorry, NIBcoalition.com, if you want to know some more about the Infrastructure Bank. And there's even sample letters there where you can uh, send a letter to your congressman and ask him to support um, uh, House, Res- House uh, Bill uh, 6422 uh, uh, in your area to put, put people back to work in your area and, and put you in into a better new-paying job. And, oh, by the way, there's training for all these jobs as well. Right. That's what's exciting, too. If you go to the website you mentioned, the nibcoalition.com, to see your board members, your advisory committee, uh, some of the folks that are on there, uh, yourself and uh, many people who've been involved in labor, uh, there's a whole movement that uh, we know is developing around this, this coalition for National Infrastructure Bank to uh, have a revival of, of labor. And one of the things i got to mention is that a lot of these fellows, because I've also spent some time in the Midwest doing organizing, I know some of these guys in Ohio and Pennsylvania and New York and Michigan, and the, the problem is kind of like our, our family farmers. They're getting older, and they need to pass on this knowledge and uh, what they've learned in their 40- to 50-year careers to the next uh, generations, the, the my generation and, and millennials in particular. So get ready for some... Uh, some hard work in the dirt for some people, uh, but, you know, again, good-paying jobs, not just, uh, you know, what people think of as uh, make work or uh, the uh, sort of slanders that the CCC might have gotten. We're, we're talking about building some uh, projects that will make us uh, proud again of, of what our country really can be. That's exactly so. Well, thank you again, Alfeca. It's Alfeca Mutardi. Uh, she is the uh, macroeconomist advisor on the committee for the coalition, excuse me, for National Infrastructure Bank. And thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to to make this presentation to your listeners. Thank you, Alfeka. We'll talk to you later. Thank you. Bye-bye.